When my first daughter was born, I realized that my life and purpose now extended beyond my lifetime to hers. She might live to 100, some say 120. And what values and lessons could I offer her that were of any importance? What conditions could I create that she would embrace, refine, and even make her own? What role would I play in her upbringing, knowing that my time was heavily taxed as a sole breadwinner and an entrepreneur without guarantees? And the same questions held true when my second daughter was born. Both benefited from having a loving mother that continues to be heavily vested in their lives. And both my daughters went on to create beautiful lives and pursue careers that are passionate, have purpose. I'm grateful to see that their lives unfold at an age where I'm still growing in my career. And I can feel most emotionally and mentally rewarded. For all of that, I'm so grateful. I don't know where I would be today if either had gone down a different path, a dark path, or worse, if I had outlived one of them. My guest today is author and proud father, Adam Robarts, the author of 19, 19 Insights Learned from a 19-Year-Old with Cancer. Adam is a father who didn't have the good fortune I did. To lose a child is heartrending and almost unbearable for any parent. But this book is not a lament. It is not a grief book. It is a story of love and learning, of faith and hope. There are moments of deep sadness, and there are moments of inspiration and pure joy. He lost his son far too young, and this show involves a loss of life, but also wrapped in that pain are observations that we can use to gain a better appreciation and perspective on our lives, and more importantly, the lives around us. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Adam Roberts, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. Great to be here. I'm very honored. I had to have a tough time even doing that opening because I always try to put myself in, in my guest's shoes. When I read your book, and I'll include notes in the podcast uh, write-up because I'll encourage others to do it, it was just so heartfelt. And how this all came together, interesting enough, and talk about six degrees, is Ty Farrell. <laughs> He's an architect I met many years ago. I was on the board of um, my kid's school, and he was doing some incredible work. Just ran into him recently, and he said, I love your podcast, and have I got a guest for you? After reading your book and learning more about your son, Hayden, and and his love of life and how he approached his death, I just so honored you're part of this. Wow, thank you. Well, thank you to Ty for uh, meeting you in that parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to just to get, just to set up this incredible family that existed. You were born in London, raised in Uganda and Kenya. So just going back to your early life, what brought you all over the world? Well, my parents had met in South Africa, interestingly, um, and decided they wanted to get married and to have children, didn't want to raise children in an apartheid regime. So East Africa was a, you know, a special place at that time. So this is the early 1960s. Uh, they found opportunity for work there. And uh, so I was born in London. And uh, at age three months, we flew to East Africa and began life in Uganda. And sort of moving the story forward quite a bit, you decide to read architecture at Cambridge University. It's one of the most challenging and respected universities in the world. And I'd have to say that degree is equally daunting. So (laughs) what brought those two together? Well, at about age 16, I realized I just loved architecture. I loved art. 
Um, and uh, my passion was actually pottery. And at school, I, I built a little kiln and I started making pottery. Actually, I think at the Cambridge interview, frankly, what excited the, the person who was interviewing me was I, I was a potter and I had made some interesting works. I don't think it was my academics. I think there were probably people there who were smarter than I were. But he thought maybe this guy's interesting. We should uh, give him a spot. So again, I take a quite a big leap. You make your way through university, and you you move to China to teach architecture in Beijing. Again, it just seems this this you're almost like a yo-yo bouncing around the world. Why <laughs> Beijing? So after I graduated, I got my professional qualifications as an architect. I was working in Manchester, in in the UK, and I was part time teaching at the university, teaching in the Department of Architecture. And I had some wonderful students who were Chinese. And one time they invited me to a Chinese New Year party. And a couple of them sort of cornered me and said, when are you going to come to China so that you can teach architecture in a Chinese university? And they said they would introduce me to some universities. And, you know, I thought, actually, I could probably do with a sabbatical. If I could take six months and just bring my life into check and maybe do some teaching in China, learn a lot. So that was the attraction. When you're there, you win a friendship award. And this isn't sort of a ribbon for participation at a scout picnic. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is one of the highest honors, if not the highest honor China gives foreign experts. So what did you deserve to get that? And it must have been for more than just a six-month sabbatical. Well, actually, that's a great question. And the answer is I have no idea how I got it. I really, <laughs> I was there doing my best as a young British architect, teaching architecture, learning some Chinese and lo and behold, I, I got this very prestigious national award in China. I, um, I To this day, it remains a complete mystery. <laughs> well, you're going to harder and harder to, to ignore what you've accomplished because 10 years later, you're inducted in the Interior Design Magazine Hall of Fame, given to designers who make a significant mark in their field. Was that by accident as well? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's an easy one because I am, interestingly, in I, I'm married to an interior designer, Karen. And uh, we set up our own practice in China. We built the business starting in 1996. Um, and she is a brilliant designer. So we started doing some projects that gained some attention. And lo and behold, I was asked if I would, well, I was invited to join the Interior Design Hall of Fame. Of course, it should have been Karen. But uh, between us, we had managed to do some work that uh, attracted attention. And you fathered four children in China. Did you have a role in that or was that all Karen as well? <laughs> I, I did the easy part for that. <laughs> okay. And so what was it like to raise children in China? I mean, we grew up in with Hollywood narrative and it just doesn't seem like it's possible, but you seem to really enjoy your life there. Yes. Well, I think China is an extraordinary country, a country of the future at the time. That future is already now, as is obvious. Um, and raising children there was for us a blessing. You know, we... You could take your children into a park and let them run and play. And if they disappeared, no one would ever worry. You'd just find them later, probably sitting on a bench with an old Chinese lady, you know, laughing and telling stories. And there was such a sense of a place that was safe, a place where especially the older people would really love children and look after them. Um, it was it was a beautiful culture, a deep culture, and where children are much prized, much loved. So with all the terrible things sometimes we see in the press about China, actually, it was it was a gift to us. And the fact that our children all speak wonderful Chinese, 
means that they've really got a leg up in a world where that that can be useful. <laughs> I remember when I was in China, I went over to do a talk in Beijing and Shanghai, and my wife and I traveled around, and we always found these parks because people don't have a garden, and they're all in the parks, and they're playing, you know, Tai Chi, or they've got, you know, ribbons, and they've got their balls on a ping pong paddle. And every time they, you know, they hand it to you and say, do you want to try? Yeah. And I had more fun feeling like a kid in that environment and looking at some people that were, you know, on the swings and in exercising in the park that absolutely looked over a hundred years old to me, but still moving like a cat. So they certainly have a lot of things going well over there. Yeah, you got it. And I think a wonderful place to age, you know, if you're an elderly person in China and you're one of those people in the park doing your Tai Chi or your early morning dancing, you know, there's such a sense of community, such a sense of support. Adam, you're traveling through Canada on a family vacation. And when asked what you would do, you probably answer something I wouldn't on Family Feud even put in the top 10. So tell me a, a bit about why that was something that even back then, when you, you know, the world's your oyster, you really wanted to be more giving and caring, I guess, than necessarily conquering and creating. I mean, first of all, I love my work as an architect. And the, the question was actually, if you were not doing what you're doing, what would you do? So I wasn't allowed to say architecture. And it just came out of my heart, this idea that I might be a hospice nurse. And I, I say it, I think, because I had had this rather profound experience a few years earlier with my father. So in 2013, um, my father passed away. And in his last weeks um, with pancreatic cancer, I went to Uganda, which is where he was, and um, talk about bouncing around the world. And I spent those weeks with dad. And it was a very sacred space for me. It was a very deep, profound, um, of course, painful experience saying goodbye to my dad. But you know, he had no fear of death. And sitting with him by his bed and holding him as he took his last breaths just had a very deep impact on my my innermost being, my soul. And I felt that was a gift. And if somehow I could help other people to approach their, their graduation from this world in a way that was as dignified, um, as sacred as I had seen with my dad, maybe that could be a gift I could offer to others. It might have been, in some ways, your dad's gift to you, because this is where the story... Mm -hmm. Turns, I think it was six years, six years after your dad's death and shortly after your trip to Canada, your son Hayden, who's 19 years old, he gets stricken with cancer. Hayden was a normally very healthy, uh, lad, you know, growing up. And now he's 19 years old. He's getting ready for university. Uh, he's very sporty. Um, he's very musical. He's obviously very bright. He's got a place to read architecture in London at UCL. And it looks, you know, to all outward eyes that, you know, the world is about to become his oyster and he's experiencing headaches, a little bit of nausea and some dizziness. Um, and uh, my brother, who is a emergency physician, an ER doctor in Toronto, said to Hayden, why don't you just get on a train uh, from Ottawa and we'll do an MRI just to be safe. So that's what happened in the summer of 2019. Our 19-year-old got on the train with his sister who accompanied him. And uh, lo and behold, they found uh, a four centimeter diameter tumor 
right in his midbrain beside his pituitary gland. I guess it's something every parent fears, but many parents have had to come to terms with. I'm just curious, how do you even react as individuals and as a couple when you know that someone that looks like it's their turn, you're passing the torch on, it's their life, you're going to live vicariously in some ways through what they're going to accomplish, you get the most horrific news you can possibly get. Well, also because Karen and I were not in the country, we were on our way to our own next chapter um, in Indonesia on the island of Bali, uh, taking our youngest to the green school. And we were sitting in a hotel room in Singapore about to fly that afternoon to Bali. And uh, my brother called and said, gave us the news about Hayden. And I just held Karen and wept. I I just recall it now. It was just like being hit by a tsunami. And in your book, you have a quote by Eckhart Tolle. And I was wondering if, because I thought it was, when I read this quote, I, was, I pictured you saying it. And I was wondering if you could read it right now. Eckhart Tolle says this in A New Earth. One of the ego's many erroneous assumptions, one of its many deluded thoughts, is I should not have to suffer. Sometimes the thought gets transferred to someone close to you. My child should not have to suffer. That thought itself lies at the root of suffering. The truth is that you need to say yes to suffering before you can transcend it. I mean, we take comfort in quotes. We take comfort in the thoughts of spiritual, philosophical people. But do you believe in that quote? Yes, you know, I've, I have followed uh, Eckhart Tolle for a while. He's a very wise and sensitive human being. Um, so yeah, he's written some wonderful things. And I, I, I love that particular quote. I think his insight into suffering ironically reflects the Chinese, the Chinese attitude to suffering, which is that actually without suffering, you cannot grow. And I think that's very different from the prevailing approach in the Western world, where we do everything we can to avoid suffering. <laughs> you know, for us, suffering and pain, you know, is, is, it doesn't fit with a, a model of, of life where the target is happiness and pleasure seeking. So when pain comes along, we, we start getting a little bit upset, angry. To the Chinese, pain is part of life. You know, the purpose of life is not pleasure, but the purpose of life is growth. And there is no such thing as growth without pain. So when the pleasure is there, terrific. When the pleasure is not there and we're having a bit of a rough time, terrific too. We take it all. Powerful thinking, as you said, so different than this, this world consumed with seeking happiness and very often just burying a lot of things along the way that one day those compartments open up and it just becomes impossible to do it. You describe in your book 19, and we're going to get to the title and, and, and everything about it, but this roller coaster that Hayden's going through in terms of cancer treatments. But what I was so amazed at was, I mean, at my age, I wouldn't want to be thinking that I'm near the end, but with Hayden's point of view, he's almost like he takes your pain away and kind of lets the family know it's all okay. I can ask you to read one more thing. If you could read the letter he writes to the family, because I went from being incredibly sad to almost, I guess, embracing much of what you just talked about, that, 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 that this was in some ways growth. I mean, in terms of the roller coaster ride that you described, Tony, you know, Hayden had two brain surgeries, 12 weeks of chemo, 
eight weeks of radiation. I mean, he was really being put through his paces. This was grueling as a journey. And the conclusion, uh, which we received on the 12th of January, sorry, on the 10th of January, 2020, was that actually the cancer was resistant. So here you are, you're a 19-year-old with your life ahead of you, and you're being told you have a cancer that is not going to go away, that you are no longer on a curative path, you're now on a palliative path. And Hayden, you know, he shed a few tears that day when we this news was broken to him in the Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto um, by the oncologists. And, you know, then he comforted his mom and dad. We were in the room with him. And we went home and he wrote this letter. And this is to a group of people, family, friends who are on a sort of email chain, um, receiving pretty regular updates that I was sending out. Um, and from time to time, Hayden would add his piece, he'd write a few words, and I'd add them to the email update. And that day he wrote, Dear all, I want to thank everyone in this email chain for being with me in spirit over the course of this journey. Your responses and just knowing that so many people are taking an interest in my well-being has been incredible. The next few months will no doubt be difficult for me. And while I would appreciate any prayers for a miracle, I also ask that if I am to meet a premature end, that you don't feel bad for me or my family, for everything happens for a reason. I have lived an incredible life, surrounded by constant love, support, and opportunities. It's a life I'm extremely grateful for, and I couldn't have asked for a more supporting and loving family and group of friends to have around me. Boundless love, Hayden. Such grace and courage, and I can only imagine the pain he's going through physically and mentally, but he's saying, I still have capacity to take more on. I'm going to take yours on. And I just think it's, uh, it's testament to the mark he must have made on so many people to appreciate life and to value life in a way that, as you said, you need to sometimes, uh, go through this to really appreciate. You write this book, 19, 19 Insights from a 19-Year-Old with Cancer. What was, what was your motivation for writing this? And you tied in with sort of a metaphor of mountain climbing, which to me allowed me to stay with your book, not because it was a clever metaphor, but it sometimes took me away from my heart roaring with sadness to at least trying to find some rationale for it. So maybe I just answered your question, but why write the book and why the metaphor with mountain climbing? Uh, well, I certainly wrote the book because I had just been through nine and a half months with a 19-year-old who had so deeply inspired us as a family, had deeply affected me as a human being um, to witness that degree of faith and hope, of calm, of detachment, of wisdom that was way beyond his years. And I wanted to share that. And I also knew that by writing it, it was a sort of therapy for me. It was a chance to sort of process what I had experienced, to share it, to reflect deeply on it. And mountain climbing. Why mountain climbing? You know, mountain climbing is interesting because it's hard work. It can be painful. It can be scary. But it's also an upward journey that is full of increasing awe and wonder as one ascends the mountain. 
And so actually it's a very powerful metaphor because it captures both, you know, both the, the pain and the difficulties, the struggle, uh, and the fact that it is a learning journey of increasing and unfolding beauty as one ascends this mountain. And the other part of this that I thought was quite powerful is, your, is how hard your family, and I imagine that any family would do it, would, would look beyond traditional medicine even. The spirituality that, was that Hayden's motivation to do that? Or was that yours? I mean, how does a family process what's going on and continue to look for answers? One aspect of our family that I haven't mentioned yet is that we are Baha'is. We try to be Baha'is. And Hayden was raised in a Baha'i family. Um, for any of your listeners who are not familiar with that, you know, it means that we um, accept the truth of all of the world's religions and faith traditions. In those faith traditions, we see, and in the writings of Baha'u'llah, is this incredible idea that we are actually spiritual beings, you know, having a human experience, you know, not human beings having a spiritual experience. So our, our, our innermost reality is fundamentally spiritual, but we are having a human experience, which is clearly material. And so it's important if you're going to heal, that we heal the whole being, you know. So whether one is taking chemotherapy for a cancer, you know, in the body, or whether one is praying, you know, in the hope that that gives us strength and courage, hope, you know, to give ourselves the spiritual nourishment and healing, these are not incompatible. So Hayden, from the beginning, and our family had this complete comfort with knowing that the spiritual and the material are not opposite. They are one and the same part of the, they're just aspects of the wholeness of being a human being, uh, whether in living and being healthy or in dealing with illness. And do you feel that Hayden's spirit is still with you? Oh, definitely. I mean, the wonderful thing about the spiritual world is that it doesn't die when the material you know, departs. It's kind of like if our spirit can be, if we use a metaphor of a bird in a cage, you know, here in this particular period of our life, you know, it's inside this material body or associating with this material body. But when the material body dies, there's actually the bird is released from the cage. It doesn't mean that the bird has died. So I think this idea of love, kindness, justice, they don't die just because the the nuts and bolts, you know, our our material body uh, dies. And I think, therefore, I feel Hayden's spirit is like the bird that has actually been released from the cage um, and continues to grow and to develop uh, in a way that I don't understand, because obviously I'm here in this world, I'm limited by my understanding, but I'm convinced that he is on a path of growth that has no end, an eternal, an eternal journey, just like for you and I and all of us. Do you feel that everybody in your family feels the same way? Or is there a disconnect if one person is comfortable and, and, and can be? Yeah, yeah, really, really good, really good question. I mean, the immediate family, those of us who are Hayden's sort of immediate climb team, which is Karen and myself as his parents and his three siblings, um, two older and one younger, um, there wasn't a disconnect in terms of when we gathered around his bedside and he asked us if we would say certain prayers or um, that we would rub his feet. You know, in in attending to that spiritual and material support, 
we were all we were all in all of us um now i think when all those prayers and all those massage foot massages <laughs> ended up that they lost their sibling you know if you look at his his brothers and his sister look at his parents that then tests one's faith right and i i think that we have all been tested and i think our tests are an opportunity for us again to grow um but they can be hard really hard so i don't want to speak for his siblings i think it has been very hard for them um and uh but during that period of hayden's illness we were all in we were absolutely committed to doing whatever it took to support him to love him and whether it was science and material medicine the best medicine we could we could find or whether it was spiritual prayer meditation comfort love uh we were absolutely with that too when we return adam and i wrap up our chat then my three takeaways and then lian kaufman the president and ceo of royal trust canada joins the show to give us more perspective on why a will even for younger generations truly matters It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipsos survey, sponsored by RBC Royal Trust, reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royaltrust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and to RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is author and proud father, Adam Robarts. His 19-year-old son passes away, but what he passes on are lessons for all of us to live by. You talked about in your book, The Lake House Outside of Ottawa, the eight weeks you spent together, as you said, meditation, you know, when, when there's no more medical answers on it, and one week before he turns 20, he passes away at home in his bed. And is there anything you can offer other people who are either facing death or family that loves that person that you might have garnered during those eight weeks that would help them? The spirit of the human being is mysterious. It's awesome. And whether we call it the soul or the spirit, um, that essential human being that is that essential us that definitely transcends the human body so here's my my conviction really conviction um is that when we look at another human being instead of looking at them as a as a, an object as a material reality in front of us with whom we're having a conversation like we're having a conversation now to look at that reality in front of us as a spiritual being i think that changes the way we talk changes the way we see that reality in front of us i look at you tony and i look in your eyes and i think i am being blessed to have a conversation a spiritual conversation with a spiritual being now if you were my son or my brother or my father and you happened to be on your deathbed by focusing on that reality that is you the real you not the broken leg or the cancerous spleen or whatever it is 
I think that changes the game. It allows us to connect at a very profound level and to always have hope. Of the 19 lessons that you share, and I know that so many people have been touched by your book, have any stood out that people say that was so important at this time in my life? Two of them, I think, in particular. I get a lot of emails from readers who say, I particularly like this, or you know, things struck. But again and again, the chapter on faith um, seems to really strike home because the way that we saw faith, um, that chapter could have been entitled Science and Religion. You know, it could have been about the harmony of science and religion because for us, we're ultimately looking for truth. And Hayden was such a lover of truth, such a learner. He loved science and he loved faith and faith in the world's religious traditions and the wisdom that we can get from those. Um, so I think that chapter is profound. It was the hardest chapter for me to write. But there's another chapter that is chapter 16. Is that, that's more what you're talking about is emotional agility, though, as well, right? Yes. Talking about yeah. how comfortably he weaved between science and spirituality. And it's almost like this cortex in his brain refused to accept either one as the absolute truth and continue to go back and forth searching for truth. Well, Emotional Agility is the title of a book by Susan David, who's a Harvard uh, medical school psychologist. Uh, it's a best-selling book. Uh, also the title of her 2017 TED Talk, um, where she looks at emotions and the particular bent that we have in the Western world of positive emotions and negative emotions, and we try to only dwell on the positive emotions. Susan David is really saying to be a healthy human being, you have to look at all your emotions, take them all, you know, and that idea of, you know, not just prizing positivity over emotional truth, but taking on all our emotions in order to work with them, to work through them, um, taking on tough emotions as our contract with life and accepting pain and suffering sometimes as part of growth, all of that is is the message of emotional agility. And in terms of taking on both with science and religion, it's the same thing, right? We're also taking on both. And I think in today's world, which is so often about separating, it's either or, we have to start thinking about both and. We have to about think in terms of separation, we have to think about integration instead of you know, retaliation, we think about reconciliation, <laughs> connect, 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 um, instead of separate. Our world is so separated, we are in serious danger. Um, and whether that's environmental or political or social or personal, how do we stay, see things in the world in the framework of togetherness, of oneness? I think Hayden just somehow came to that very naturally. You know, um, I think that was a, his superpower. He certainly channeled it through you in terms of many times I felt you were writing his words. Oh, thank you. I really do. I really think that when, because there's times where you almost change the tone or the narrative. It's almost like you're reading it as opposed to writing it, if that makes sense. Thank you. And you talked about your second lesson. I mean, I, I interrupted you and just good time, but so what was the second one? So the second one is trust. That was a chapter or a lesson that I don't think I wrote. Of course, I physically typed it, but it just came through me. And often as I wrote this book, I, I called upon Hayden. You know, I asked for inspiration, for guidance, for insights, um, coming from that spiritual world. And 
I turned a lot to Hayden. And this chapter on trust, to me, was a gift. Um, I mean, without repeating the whole chapter here, I mean, a key point of this, this, this notion of trust is that as regard our children, our children, we believe, and the Baha'i faith certainly upholds, are given to us as trusts from God. And as parents, as families, we are trustees to nurture that trust, to raise that trust. But our children don't belong to us. And so when we look at Hayden and his place in this world, yes, we were blessed that he was part of our family for these 19 years, but he belonged to the world. And I think the world lost him. Um, and his insights, his maybe special maturity, you know, was something that was entrusted to us to raise and to nurture. So I, th I feel this, this chapter on trust, it's also the chapter where we go as intimately as I could possibly bear writing about his last days, his last hours, and his last breaths on this earth, and what actually happened holding him as he took those last breaths. That was very much sacred time and sacred space, and as a father, heart-wrenching um, and deeply mysterious. Yeah, I keep referring to this word sacred. It just... I don't know if you were at the presence of the birth of your, your daughters, Tony, but you know, if you've seen a human being being born into this world, there's something extraordinary about it. You know, there's a feeling of we're witnessing something otherworldly, almost that proves there's another world. And I think in that situation, you're in the arrivals lounge welcoming this, this new, this new being into the world. Um, with Hayden, of course, we were in the departure lounge you know, sort of accompanying him as he took his last breaths with us here on earth. But knowing that his journey continues, um, deeply, deeply convinced, actually, and certainly in those last few weeks, there were things he said that almost felt that he had a foot in that other world already. <laughs> it wasn't just like one breath he's here and the next breath he's gone. It was a transition. You know, you talk about his journey continues. How has his death changed your journey in terms of what you plan to do with the mountains that are ahead of you? Bring him on. You know, I think with Hayden, it was whatever comes our way, we can take it on. You know, he just was willing to take it on whatever it was, even knowing at the early onset, anyone being told that they have cancer must think, gosh, I wonder if this is, this is the way I'm going to go. And Hayden, of course, looked forward to life. He didn't want to die. But if that was what was going to happen, if that was his mountain, then so be it. You know, there's a chapter on mindfulness at, towards the end. I feel my life has become more mindful, more conscious. Um, Mindfulness, interestingly, is a relatively new word. It was only in 1881 that Rice Davids coined the term mindfulness from the, the, the Buddhist tradition of sati. Sati actually was previously translated as present moment awareness. Actually, I rather prefer that. It's a bit more clunky, but I feel that after Hayden's passing, my life has become more aware, more, I walk down the street and I feel I'm more 
more alive, more conscious of what's happening around me, more able to experience present moment awareness, more able to be grateful, to, to live in the now, um, but not to live for the now. That's important, you know, to live for the future, because if you're living for the now, that can be very indulgent, you know, very self-serving and very short-sighted. I think we have to live in the now and for the future so that we are actually creating something um, in our journeys. And I think with Hayden's passing, I feel more, ironically, more alive. And do you have another book in you? Because I think you've become so <laughs> philosophical, is that the right word? But just so, I think you could bring a lot to people, especially nowadays, as you say, because the world is so upside down. I've just started working on something. So yes, the answer I think has to be yes. Um, too early to say uh, what it is, but um, I'm looking forward to a journey where I can do a little bit more writing. I find writing to be kind of my my yoga <laughs> in that it allows me to to breathe and to process to stretch and to become to become maybe what i was meant to become of course i do that as an architect but uh i have found a love for writing so i'm forever grateful actually to hayden for allowing me to discover that um and here's the the irony is that after hayden passed away we found in his little black notebook beside his bed, notes for what seems to be a book that he was planning to write. And um, obviously, if he had if he had conquered this particular disease, and maybe he would have written that book, those notes were really helpful to me. Some of them emerged in the book 19, and uh, others may emerge in future books. Let's see how that goes. My final question, and I've asked you a lot about yourself, but if Hayden was here, I do believe he's here, but what would he say? Tony, this is my favorite question because Hayden made it easy for me to answer this one. You know, Hayden actually, as a 19-year-old, wrote a will, or he started to write a will. I don't think he finished it, but it was written in his little notebook beside his bed. And after he passed away, I opened that up and, you know, right at the top of his will, guess what he said? I think it's so important. And these are his words, I think, in answer to your question. What would he say? If he was here, I put it on the back jacket of the book. Live a life filled with joy and try to consciously consider how to bring joy to the lives of those around you as well. Hayden Robarts. And I, get, I said my last question, but I now have my final question. How hard was it for you to open that book? When Hayden, in his last week's he said, Dan, I'm giving you full permission to open my notebook, open my laptop, read anything you want on my phone, my phone notes. And so I felt I had permission from him to do that. And honestly, when I did each of those things, looked in his computer and looked in his, especially this little notebook that he had by his bed, um, often I would just have tears running down my face, you know, just seeing the, the goodness of a human being. You know, Hayden was, he wasn't a saint, you know, but he was a, a solid guy. He was good. You know, he really brought joy to the lives of people around him um, in a way that was humble. Um, he didn't go into a room and it was like trumpets blasting. It was often very gentle and quiet, unassuming. 
And yet he was always there for everybody else, for the people at his school, his friends, his, his siblings, his parents, you know, just a thoroughly good human being. And I would read those notes and often just have tears running down my face. It was just a moment of sadness that he was no longer here to be able to hug, um, but a moment of joy because actually I could just see that goodness, you know, and it just allowed me to, to believe, to believe in human beings. After listening to you, I'm more at peace with the time that my number will come up, even though I love life. I can't imagine retiring. I can't imagine leaving life because I just enjoy it so much. What I really think you need to continue to do, and I think Hayden's going to force you to do it, is keep sharing it because you have a perspective of someone that's lived through it, not just someone writing about it, not just someone uh, researching about it. And I think that those personal journeys in a world of infinite content and negativity and, and this is just such an important thing to share. And I always walk away with my three lessons and I don't even know how I'm going to do three because I got so many going through. The first though is just how easily you tried to shift separation to integration, you know, retaliation and reconciliation and just, you know, and I always use the words from insecurity to security and uncertainty to certainty. They just, that it, so much of it is an attitude in life in terms of how do we want to hang on to a better future? Maybe as you said, living in the moment, do we want to spend more time enjoying the moment versus seem to be this destructive path we are on as a planet? So the second one is you can't grow unless you grow also with pain. And for the Western world that has been fed often with substances, this sense of chasing happiness or imagine the freedom of winning a lottery or all this, this false sense of hope to realize that, uh, circumstances are there for a reason, whether they're positive or negative, whether they seem insurmountable or surmountable, it's life and embrace it and enjoy it. And I think the most important was uh, your belief in human beings. I hope we could bottle it and spread it around the world like fairy dust, because if we realize that first and foremost, we're all human beings, I think this world would be much more embracing your world of, you know, instead of retaliation, reconciliation, and instead of separated, united, that would be the, the path forward. So for you and Hayden and the gift he brought to you and you're bringing to us, thank you again for being on Shadow That Matters. Thank you, Tony. It was an honor to be with you. So joining me today is someone that I admire for her energy. Every time I turn on LinkedIn, she's somewhere in Canada. Her name's Leanne Kaufman. She's the president and CEO of Royal Trust Canada. Leanne, uh, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, thanks very much for having me and, and hearing that from somebody like you, uh, the energetic bunny. Uh, thank, I appreciate your words. Royal Trust of Canada. What do you do and why do you matter for Canadians? So we are uh, a trust company, as the name suggests, which means that we are the only kind of company or corporation that can offer services as an executor, as a trustee, or as a power of attorney. And we've been doing it for 125 years. 2024 is our 125th anniversary. So that means that whereas, you know, most people might typically think you name a child or a niece or a nephew or a, or a trusted friend as an executor, a power of attorney or a trustee. Lots of people now have such complicated situations 
um, or they just don't want to burden their friends and family with that role, they hire us as a professional to do that task. I was taken aback when I was reading one of your posts, I think on LinkedIn, about that many Canadians don't have a will really prevalent in terms of young Canadians. So what I'd love you to talk about, number one, is why is it important to have a will and then we'll get we'll go to sort of the motivators for getting people to maybe take some action. Yeah, well, first of all, you're right. The statistics are shocking. We still see about 50%, maybe upwards of 52% of Canadians not having a will, but you you make a good point that it is kind of skewed to the younger demographic. But I think the reason that it's so troubling is because people don't have a good understanding of what happens when you die without a will and how much work or how much additional work and potentially heartache you're you're uh, creating for the people that you've left behind. So I won't get too deep into the the legalities, of course, but um, basically you're you're forcing someone to go to court to get um, authority, to step into your shoes, to be able to wind up your affairs, even if your affairs are meager. There's no such thing as too small of an estate unless it's entirely bankrupt. So, you know, you're forcing someone to go through an additional step or additional processes. You may be creating some family tension as to who it is it's going to apply. You're not leaving any direction about how you want your assets distributed or to whom. In fact, the law will step in to say who gets what and in what proportion. It may not be what you would have wanted. So that's another thing to understand is by doing nothing, you're making a choice. And yeah, it's just, it's just really not. Uh, setting up your the people that you're leaving behind for success at a time when they're already grieving and they're already going through all the emotions of having lost someone. So let's talk about the statistic. You know, you mentioned 52% and, and it is skewed more to the young people. And I have to believe that, you know, when you're young, you feel you're immortal and I can, I'll, something I'll take care about much later in life. But what advice can you give to young people to at least understand wills, if not more importantly, start taking action to put something down on paper and to set up to set yourself up for success because we know how unpredictable life can be. Well, especially for younger people or those who have a really simple estate, there's some great online tools out there that can help with this. It can not only explain the consequences, but also help you create a will um, if it's appropriate in your circumstances to have such a simple one in, in a really short period of time and, and really not at great expense. So we partner with a group, for example, called Epilogue Wills and, um, they, they have been great partners to us at RBC. And, you know, in 20 or 30 minutes, you can both understand why this is important and have a document in place that's valid and, you know, helps, helps protect your family. Um, both emotionally and probably financially in the unlikely event that something were to happen to, to but, you know, again, we're talking mostly about younger people um, being most appropriate for these things. So Leanne Kaufman, I'm going to include a link to that for the young people listening and for people that maybe have more complexity. Mm-hmm. Where do you suggest they go if they happen to be on that 52% that don't have a will or maybe they're in a need of a, a, a refresh? because their life has changed. Yeah, and that's a great point you make that, you know, you can't set it and forget it, right? Um, With a will, things change. People pass away, people move on in your life, new people come in, new charities, that kind of thing. It is worth taking a look at even an existing will periodically. But as to your question as to where to go, well, you can certainly start if you work with uh, uh, an investment advisor, a financial advisor, they will have a network of people because this is part of of good wealth management, 
Um, there are certainly resources online to help find someone. If you do have complexity, though, my, my suggestion is that you find your way to a solicitor who specializes in this area because the rules are, you know, complex and, and you need some tax planning as well. So, um, you know, start with either a, a lawyer that you trust or a referral from a lawyer that you trust or your financial advisor who can point you in the right direction. Leanne Kaufman, is always a pleasure to have you on Chatter That Matters and you know I will be knocking on your door many times in 2024 and beyond. So uh, thank you again for joining me. Such a delight, Tony. Thanks so much. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening and let's chat soon.